So on August 31st, the year 2004, the manager of a Burger King in Richmond Hill, Georgia, found a man lying unconscious by their dumpster. The man had been beaten, was severely sunburned, and to make matters worse, was completely covered in bites from fire ants. When the authorities arrived, the man had no identification, no wallet, and when he regained consciousness, he could not remember who he was. He had no clue about any part of his life. And because he had no identification, they did not know his name, they simply referred to him as BK because they found him next to a Burger King. That pseudonym was eventually translated into a name. They started calling him Benjamin Kyle from those initials, a name that he uses to this day. Benjamin Kyle has never regained his memory. He spent time in a series of hospitals, both medical and psychiatric. It was also discovered that he had such severe cataracts that he could only see shapes. And out of compassion, a nonprofit paid for him to have the cataracts removed so he could see. And when he regained his vision, though he had not regained his memory, he looked in the mirror and this is what he said. When I looked into the mirror, I saw an old man in his 60s with gray hair and an aging face. Not only did I not know my name, that day I saw the face of a man I did not recognize. Amnesia seems like a terrifying thing. I've never had amnesia, so I can't speak from experience. I suppose the closest I've ever come was awakening from a deep sleep and not knowing what day it is. You ever had that happen? You you wake up and you don't really know what day it is. And I usually wonder, is it Sunday? Because if it is, my sermon's not ready to go yet. But that's probably the closest I've ever come to having amnesia. From time to time, over the Christian church's 2,000 years of history, we forget who we are. If you, if you read church history, you know there are periods in which God did incredible things through the Christian church, but there are other periods, darker periods, like the schisms, the inquisitions, in which people were tortured because of a divergent belief, or the Crusades, witch hunts, burning people at the stake, unhealthy obsession with power and cultural and political posturing and moralism and judgmentalism and and legalism. And in the midst of all of this stuff, it's easy to lose sight of the simple reality that as Christians, it's in our name, we're followers of Jesus. One who lived rather simply. One who cared for the poor, the sick, the marginalized. He worked miracles not simply to propagate his own name, but to to bring healing into the lives of others. This one who, who did the extraordinary and unexpected, a paradigm shifting movement on one of the most sacred of Jewish holidays, the Passover, as he sat with his disciples, disciples who were there with very dirty feet, covered in the mud of the world, 
Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the leader, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, gets down on his knees and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Up until that moment in recorded history, there was never a single event in which a superior washed the feet of a subordinate until Jesus. It was, it was unexpected. It was, it was surprising. It was shocking. It was, it was all these things. No one knew what to do. They were speechless. And then this same Jesus offered extravagant grace to people who certainly did not deserve it. Jesus offered just this amazing grace to a, a tax collector named Zacchaeus, a man who exploited people, took advantage of his own community. And Jesus offered him salvation. Jesus offered grace to a young woman who was a prostitute, a woman who anointed Jesus' head with oil, probably the oil she used in the conducting of her business, and Jesus extended to her mercy. Jesus also extended grace to a zealot, a political extremist who used violence to, to extend his agenda, and he invited him into his inner circle to be one of his disciples. And then finally, as we know, he gave his life in sacrifice. And so for the first 300 years of Christianity, followers of Jesus lived in this way, modeling their life after Christ for the name Christian literally means little Christs. They cared for the poor. They took care of each other. They worked with the marginalized. They offered extraordinary grace and they changed the whole world. It's easy, however, for the Christian life to be absorbed into a frantic life of trying to be a good person, which really is manic, because uh, can we ever really be that good? Or we're fighting for what we believe to be right, attempting to do good things for God, and all the while creating a prepackaged spirituality with the intent of scratching some spiritual itch we can't seem to reach. And so I think from time to time, it's good to ask the question, who are you? Who are we? It's a question we ask through our entire life. We all wrestle with that question of identity. As a child, when we ask the question, who am I? It's usually wrapped in the idea of love. Am I loved? Am I accepted? Am I cared for? Am I safe? As a teenager, When I consider my identity, the question was always, am I accepted? Do I belong? As a young adult in the mid-20s, the question is, what can I do with my life that has meaning and purpose? Can I live out my passion? When we hit middle age, which is where I find myself right now, there's kind of this crisis that happens Um, am I living the life I'm supposed to be living? And then we move some of us into empty nesters, which I'm three years away from being, and then retirement, and the question then becomes, what's next? Does my life matter anymore? Who am I? We look for the answer to that question in so many different ways. Sometimes we, we base all of our identity on what it is that we do, our vocation, our career, the trajectory of our life. In 1992... I was a junior in high school, and I was in an appointment with my guidance counselor. His name was Mr. Lovejoy, and this is his real name, Mr. Lovejoy. I sat across the desk from Mr. Lovejoy, and he said, Michael, 
So what do you think you want to do once you get out of high school? And I just, I had no idea. I didn't know. Was it college? I don't know. Was it a trade? I don't know. What do you want to be when you grow up, Mike? I don't know. So I just kind of made something up to appease him. I don't remember even what I said, but it seemed like there was so much pressure to choose an identity based on what I did. Other times, we we base our identity on what others say about us, who others think that we are. I worked for a guy years ago. I was in graduate school. And I was about halfway through my program, and he said, hey, how how you doing in school? And I said, doing, well, doing okay. I have a B right now. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're just a typical B student. I'm like, sheesh, how about some encouragement? So that next semester when I got an A, I put all my coursework and taped it on his door just to be a jerk. <laughs> Other times we base our identity on what it is that we have, our possessions, our belongings. And that can get distorted really quickly. I visited a, a pastor years ago, 20, 25 years ago, in Bellflower, California. He was a person I was looking to as a mentor in some ways. And I pulled up to his church, and he had his own parking spot. And the sign said, parking for pastor only. All other vehicles will be melted and destroyed. And both him and his wife drove brand new BMWs. I'm like, wow. I was invited to his home afterwards that was upwards of a million dollars. And I thought, wow, maybe being a pastor does pay off. And I, I, I thought, is this, is this what it means to... I think all of those things can form pieces of our identity, but none of those things are who we are. I want to turn today to the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. Now, for the first part of this letter, the Apostle Paul is defending himself against his critics. You ever been criticized, right? Nobody likes being criticized. Whenever we're criticized, we feel like we need to defend ourselves. And so the Apostle Paul is defending himself against his critics. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's always easy to criticize from the cheap seats, right? I mean, right, right now we are, if you're a football fan, you're kind of, we're in that season right now where everyone's criticizing every team. They should have done this. They could have done that. They, why didn't they do that? Most of whom never even touched a football, but we have all the answers because everyone loves to be a critic. So we come uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is done defending himself. And then he moves into this, this kind of ideal about Christian identity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, The old is gone, the new is here. That is who you are. All of this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. See, in Christ... Your identity is not in what you do, what others say you are, or what you possess. Your identity 
is that in Christ you are a new creation, reconciled to God, all has become new. That is who you are. Matter of fact, you can turn to the person sitting next to you right now and you can say, wow, you're quite a creature. (laughs) As we flip through the pages of Scripture, we get this robust definition of our identity. In Psalm 139, the scriptures tell us that we are intricately and intentionally created, that every cell in our body is pulsating with divine design and intention. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, we're reminded that we are the beloved of God, and there is nothing that can remove our status as the beloved of God. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus says, I don't call you servants, I call you friend. Call you friends, you are a friend of God. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 7, in Christ we are fully and completely accepted. We cannot earn it, we don't deserve it, but because of Christ we are reconciled and accepted just as we are. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 10, in Christ you are complete. You are a new creation. And so we enter into this identity. We enter into this new creation by a simple confession. See, this new creation is the result of of belief and solemn acknowledgement. The the Apostle Paul, as he writes to a church in the city of Rome, he, he says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, there's a, there's a simplicity to that. From time to time, I think it's important to, to remind ourselves of the simplicity of the message of the gospel because we are really good at complicating religion, at complicating Christianity. And yet, it, it is in many ways simple. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You are a new creation. That is who you are. And God's truth outlasts others' opinions and criticisms of you. Now maybe you say, well, I don't really feel like a new creation. I just don't feel worthy. Listen, as humans, we all have a proclivity towards sin. You want to know why? Because most of the time we like it. Right? Like if I commit the sin of gluttony regularly, it's because I like food and I can't control myself. Or if I commit the sin of greed, if I'm greedy, it's because I like stuff and I like me and I want me to have stuff, a lot of it. Or if I commit the sin of lying, I lie to get myself out of a jam or make myself look better. Or if I have sexual struggles... Well, you have sexual struggles. Why? Because you like it. Or if you have the sin of gossip in your life, it's because gossiping about others makes me feel better about myself. Now, of course, morals are important. Morals are part of this life we've committed to, yet moralism is deadly to the soul. See, see, moralism is constructing a way of life in which Christ's sacrifice is not enough, so I need to be good enough to earn it. We would never say it that way, but how many times have I 
succumb to that. Forgetting the Christian faith is not something we live up to. The Christian faith is something we live into. And it is experienced at the level of the soul. My, my soul being the most real part of who I am. That God-breathed part. In the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we read that God breathed into the, the man and he became a living being. That divine breath. The creation of the soul. The most real part of you created in God's image and likeness, and we get the full picture of who God is by the creation of the man and the woman together. It's what keeps us from being reduced to simple biology. You are a new creation at the level of your soul. And because of that, we are challenged, asked, even commanded by Jesus to publicly reveal that identity. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, this is what Jesus says. I want you to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The outward expression of that transformation is the act of baptism, which we just experienced a moment ago with these four individuals. Jesus said, this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to acknowledge me publicly and the way that you do that is through baptism. Like when I'm baptized, I'm, I, I'm, I'm yielding to the command of Christ. I'm being obedient to my, my Savior because what baptism is, is a representation of what's happened internally. Writing again to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul has this to say. For we died and we were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. And so when I step into the water, and the word baptize means to immerse underwater, which is why we do what we do. You go under the water, underneath the water symbolizes a death, and coming back out symbolizes a resurrection into new life. So when you've, when you've come into relationship with Christ, I'd like you to publicly make a statement about that by, by doing that. Now, baptism wasn't a new idea. We get baptism from our Jewish roots. I mean, in Judaism, there's all kinds of cleansing rituals. Many Jews enter into a bath called a mikvah in which they make themselves clean ritually before God. And so baptism really isn't that far away from that. Now, you may be thinking, that's, that's nice, Mike, that's fine. I was baptized as an infant, no big deal, and... I'm not going to get into all the theology of that, but I was, I was baptized as an infant, as a, as a baby. It's, it's fine. But in 1991, when I made my own personal choice, when I decided for myself, through my, my public confession and my, my belief, I wanted to make that statement for myself, and so I was baptized by going under the water and, and coming out because I wanted the world to know that I've decided to follow Jesus. And from that place, we, we live into our identity, right? Turning now to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, again, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is this incredible gift of God. Not by works so that anyone can boast, for we are God's handiwork 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared us in advance to do. I don't do good in the world so I can boast or even be saved, but I do good in the world because I want to, because I'm created to do good. The word or phrase doing good in this particular context, it means to make things better, to help others, to be a source of comfort and healing. I wonder, have you ever had chapped lips? Anybody ever have chapped lips? It's a horrible thing. Like the, the two worst things for me are sore throat or chapped lips. I'd rather have the flu than have chapped. I hate that feeling. But every once in a while, I get chapped lips. They're dry and burning. And you know, when you have chapped lips, what do you do? Get some chapstick. Oh, so much better, right? I mean, it doesn't cure it, but at least it gives a little bit of relief. When I choose to do good luck, to do good work in the world, it's like putting bomb on chapped souls, weary souls, hurting souls. In the early 2000s, my wife and I went through a really difficult season. There had been a series of losses and death and all kinds of things. And because of that, we found ourselves in just a dark place. Maybe you've been in a dark place and it's the kind of place where you ask, God, where are you? Why do I feel so alone and so abandoned? And it was right around that time that a young couple entered in our, into our life named Alan and Jeannie. And Alan and Jeannie just sat with us, cried with us, loved us in the midst of all of that. And their presence, the good work of their presence was like Lip balm on chapped lips. No, they didn't cure us of what ailed us, but they certainly helped us find a little bit of comfort and relief. As as a follower of Christ, our calling, our mandate, our passion is to do good in the world. I mean, for the first 300 years of church history, Christians were known not for what they believed, but but for how they lived their life, what they did. That's what I want to be known for. Not just what I believe, but how I actually choose to live my life and do good in the world. So maybe maybe this morning you're here and you're just kind of seeking, you're not really sure how you feel about God or religion. And the invitation for you today is uh, it's a, a simple one. Christ says just... Believe, confess with your mouth that I'm Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead and you are a new creation. It's really that simple. Others of us, yeah, you've done that. You've, you've become that new creation, but you've actually never publicly professed it through baptism. And so maybe for some of us, the challenge is to make that public proclamation of faith by getting baptized. And I've got great news You've got a baptism happening at Easter. We'd love for you to be a part of it. If you take that connection card and write on there, I'd like to be baptized, put your name on it. We'll reach out to you. We'd love for you to be a part of that. And for others of us, 
maybe you've made your profession of faith, you've been baptized, and now the challenge is, yeah, I really want to live my faith by doing good in the world. And if you want just a reminder, as you walk out in the lobby, find one of our pastors, say, hey, I'm committed to doing good in the world, and they're going to give you some chapstick, just to remind you. I want to end by reading a piece of of Christian historical writing from the year AD 130. It's called the Epistle to Dionides. And it's a, a description of how the very first Christians chose to live their, choose to live their life. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They begot children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey prescribed laws, and at the same time they surpass the laws by the way they live their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, but restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack in all things, yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet even in their dishonor they are glorified. They are spoken evil of, and yet justified. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. Each Christian enacting a way of life that reveals a transformation. And so my prayer, oh God, for us as a congregation is that we would be simple confessors of Christ as Lord. That we would be public proclaimers of that faith through our baptism, but also through the way that we live our life, the good works that come from our hands and our mouth and our feet. Because our identity is in you. We are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And we find our satisfaction in you. That we are accepted by God. Loved by the creator. And for that we are eternally grateful.